Well, good morning, and we are excited to rejoin our human series, looking at these early chapters of Genesis that lay some foundations for us uh, as a society, as individuals. And I was really excited this week because I got a book through the post. Here it is, uh, Soil Tillers and Ale Tasters. Uh, this is a book that is probably very, very uninteresting to most of you watching uh, because it's written by George Chilvers. Uh, my surname, obviously. Uh, and what it is, it's a history of the Chilvers family. That's why it's irrelevant to most of you. But it's quite an interesting read. It's a real page turner. It's good. Uh, and there's lots of things we discovered. Apparently, I've got smugglers in my ancestry, although they weren't very good smugglers. Apparently, he was arrested before he'd even actually done any smuggling. But what struck me is on the back is a description of the book. And this is how it begins and talk about a bit of a claim for a book. This is the story of the male line of the Chilvers family right from the beginnings of man. Quite a bold claim. But as I read that out, my wife Claire said, what about the women? Because that's obviously the story of the male line. Uh, and of course, that gets to the heart of what we're looking at today because we're shifting gear a bit in the series. Up to now, we've seen the amazing aspects of the creation and how God has crafted this world, this beautiful world that we're in. And we've seen different aspects of what we're called to do and how the creation was done, all these sorts of things. But today, we're shifting gear to focus in on us. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some really important themes for us as individuals, as illustrated by the new artwork that we've got behind me, uh, by the legend that is Stuart Tonge, part of our church community here. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, and it's basically summarising that over these next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some huge issues around relationships, sex, men and women, gender, shame, all sorts of things that impact our lives daily and cause us both great joy, but also real pain. And I'm aware that this series, for many of us, has raised issues that are very real and very raw for us. And so as we shift gear, I want to set the scene by reminding us of some really important things that are right at the heart of Christianity. Jesus was once asked, what's the greatest commandment? In other words, he was asked, strip it all down, Jesus. What's the central deal? What do we need to remember? And he said these words that will be on the screen. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Simply love God, he said, and love others. Love God, of course, includes what he says, listening to what he says, but also doing what he says. And if you're anything like me, the reality is I can be so easily more influenced by Netflix or by social media than actually what God says. All of us know that 24-7 we are being discipled. We are hearing voices all around us, and so often it can be easier to listen to those voices rather than the voice of God. Love God, 
Jesus said. Put him first. And then out of that, love your neighbor as yourself. Love others. And Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? And he told this story about the Good Samaritan. And at the heart of that is people we don't agree with are our neighbor. People who are not part of my tribe are my neighbor. People that are outcasts are my neighbor. So love God, listen to what he says, put him first, and then love others. That's central to the heart of Christianity. And as we explore these verses that we've just listened to in Genesis, we can easily forget those dimensions. And I think that one of the ways that Jesus uh, issues to us a radical call is this. That it might be that as followers of Jesus, if we are, that we're called to acceptance without agreement. Compassion without condition. And I think this is true, particularly in a culture like ours, which is a culture of outrage. Regardless of our perspective over these coming weeks, the gospel of Jesus is about righteousness that is apart from me, apart from what I do. As one author has put it, people need Jesus, not moralism. And I'm convinced that one of the calls on us as followers of Jesus today is to live a life of contrast rather than conflict. And so with that said, loving God looks like listening to him and reminding ourselves what he says about us. Who we are, our identity is first and foremost in how God sees us. He created us. And the beauty of how God sees us is so much less focused on the things we tend to focus on. As we've seen through this series so far, we live with a God who says you are fearfully and wonderfully made and we'll discover over these weeks that we're also terribly shattered and devastated by sin. In the words of the late comedian Harris Whittles, we're all horrible and wonderful and figuring it out. Or as you might say, the Christian knows that they're a sufferer, a sinner and a saint. And so with that backdrop, today we're introduced to the first time, for the first time, to Adam and Eve. And in verse 18, as the reading began, we've got a startling discovery. Up to now, everything in this creation story has been described as good or very good. And yet in verse 18, we read these words. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And remember, this is before chapter three, where it all goes belly up with the tree and the serpent. There's something in this good creation that is not right, something missing, something not good. And the reason it's not good is because it's not good for the man to be alone. There's something missing. And this makes sense when we remember what it was that God calls humanity to do. After he'd created in chapter 1, what do we read? We read this, one, chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. 
Do you notice something really important about the order of all that? Humans are made in God's image and then given something to do. The order is crucial. There's a dignity about every single human, regardless of their relationship, regardless of what they've achieved. And the same is true for us. Some of us long to play our part in being fruitful and increasing in number, in having children. But some of us can't. And some of us know the pain of that. Some of us won't be in that relationship that we long for. Some of us will be single and wish we weren't. Some of us won't be able to be involved in stewarding the creation for a whole host of reasons. Our health, our disabilities, whatever it might be. But yet, the dignity and value of every single person is before all of that because we're made in God's image. And of course, ultimately, we follow a saviour, Jesus, who was single all his life. Didn't have any children. And yet, he is the model of humanity. And so, all of us are made in God's image. And one aspect of being made in God's image is, if you like, he's the king. And king the sort of sending representatives to steward his kingdom. And we're therefore called to rule, to, to kind of govern and look after things as he does. And amazingly, he, the creator of all, gives us a chance to join in what he is doing. He could have, he's God, he could have just created loads more humans. He could have just set the world in motion and said, there we go, it's all done. But he invites humanity to join in what God's doing. And this is so radical compared to the other creation stories of the time where humans were created to entertain the gods or to provide food for the gods. And no, here, all of us are given the task of doing what God does, creating and caring. This is radical. That's what it means to be part of being made in God's image. And the writer says, it's not good for him to be alone. He can't do this on his own. There's something necessary about both man and woman in this creation. And it becomes clear when we look again at verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. He repeats it in verse 20. We've got this amazing moment where all the animals are brought in front of Adam and after that, after he names them all again, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now, those two words, suitable and helper, are really crucial for us. The word helper, it, it, it's kind of almost seems a bit derogatory in our culture, doesn't it? Oh, the woman's there to help out the man. But actually, in the Bible, that word is most often used of God. A beautiful psalm, Psalm 121, that says, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Same word. There's something necessary in this companionship. Some need that the other meets. And this isn't just a functional need. There's a relational connection. In fact, one kind of legendary Hebrew scholar uses the word sustainer. A suitable sustainer is found. And that's metaphorically shown in verse 22, where we've got this moment where out of Adam's rib, Eve 
is created. And it's almost like that metaphorical picture of actually both Adam and Eve together, not one in front ahead of the other to dominate or to kind of be in front of or one behind, but no, side by side with the call that God has on them as men and women. So that's the word helper. But the other word is suitable. Suitable helper was found. And that word is really quite a complex Hebrew word, but basically means like opposite him or corresponding to and different. In other words, that word suitable basically means exactly like you and entirely different. (laughs) The similarity is key and the difference is key. And why is that so refreshing? Well, it gives a radical dignity and equality to both men and women. You don't need me to tell you that throughout history, societies are littered with examples of either women or men, but we know mostly women, being treated as less than, not needed, or needed for just one thing. And men have behaved as though they're the gods. But here the biblical framework, in contrast to so many things, is stunning. There's a radical, refreshing equality that says they're given the opportunity together of doing what God does, creating and caring. And of course, even in our culture today, with all the shifts of technology and societal shifts, Both male and female are still needed. The sperm and the egg are still needed to create humans. And that's made clear when you see what the name Adam means and Eve. Adam literally means human from the ground, human. And Eve means life, together human life. Both are necessary. And whether we know it or not, the roots of feminism, the roots of the hashtag MeToo era are here because there is a beautiful equality for both men and women. But there's another outworking of this. Both men and women are needed to steward this creation. And this is hugely radical, again, compared to other ancient ideas. I don't know if you've seen the thing during COVID, uh, where people have kind of compared which countries have done well. And there's that sort of meme going around about how, isn't it interesting how some of the countries with female leaders who seem to be doing the best, whether or not that's true, I don't know. But what is true is that both men and women are needed together to look after the world. That's why here at Riverside, we believe really strongly, both men and women in leadership, we need all insights together. And this shows that God, who God says you are is not tied to cultural trends about what certain societies think of men and women. Sadly, today, so much of when we talk about gender is basically sort of baptizing our cultural preferences. It seems to me that the Bible is pointing here to the truth that there are two distinct sexes, male and female, that they're entirely different and yet the same. But those groupings are really not to do with what most cultural understandings are of men and women. I was reading uh, uh, just this uh, last few weeks about different colours. And I remember my brother used to live in London and moved up to Sunderland. And I remember when he moved up to Sunderland, he was once wearing a pink shirt, like Nate was wearing this, is wearing this morning. Uh, he was wearing a pink shirt, and this real northern guy came up to him and said, mate, love your shirt. Did they do it in men's colours too? 
And it reminded me of that, that kind of cultural preferences that so often all around the planet we have. And yet 100 years ago, that was reversed. Boys were in pink, girls were in blue, and so on. There are so many things that we attach to men and women that actually are just cultural, really. It's a stupid example in many respects. But we need to work hard at showing the value of every individual, the equality and necessity of both men and women, whilst also working hard to show that much of what our society puts on that is just cultural, not biblical. And so with all that said, what has all this got to do with the hugely important questions around sex, Sexuality, identity, transgender conversation, relationships, singleness, celibacy. And over the coming weeks, we're going to pick this up in a variety of ways. But I want to say something. I want to apologize. I want to apologize that so often the church and so many of us have treated things like this as an issue rather than remembering that it at the heart as people. And also I want to apologize for not helping us all to think about this more. If we follow Jesus and long to be his disciples, the truth of it is that we're all being discipled all the time, so we need each other to support each other, to work out what that looks like in our lives. These are big things that affect us all deeply. And sometimes silence really doesn't help. And thirdly, one of the things I want to own is the fact that we know we're living in Genesis 3, not Genesis 2. We're living the other side of the fall and all the fracture that was caused through that. And we'll see over these coming weeks the implications of that. Next week, we're going to look at the whole subject of sex. Now, it's worth saying that we do want to be spending a good chunk of time looking at the whole subject of human sexuality. We fully intended to do it as part of this series, uh, but so much of this can't really be healthily explored in a quick YouTube video. We want to value people, and therefore we want to do it together, and so we're going to do that once we're out of lockdown. We can actually physically gather. Hopefully, it won't be too long. But for now, I want to briefly reflect on something about what all of this discussion might mean for a particular conversation around transgender and for those who don't feel at home in their bodies. I want to steer you to our blog. There's some resources on there that you might find helpful, including some resources for parents about how you navigate these conversations with your children. But again, let's remember this is we're talking about people not an issue. Love your neighbor and love God, which includes the most vulnerable, includes the activists, it includes children, it includes everyone down your street. Conversations with real people and about real people. And the posture here is so crucial, isn't it? We as a church, when we've walked with people as a leadership who are navigating things around the transgender conversation for themselves or for family members. We've wanted to listen, put people in touch with good care and support and professional help, but recognizing the pain and the reality of those stories, simply wanting to journey with them. Now, of course, the Bible doesn't explicitly talk about transgender, 
They're modern categories. But I wonder if there's some principles from something Jesus says in which he picks up some of this stuff from Genesis chapter 2. It's in Matthew chapter 19. There's this moment where he's talking to the religious leaders about the whole subject of divorce. And he's asked a question about divorce. Uh, we won't get into the details of it. But we read these words in Matthew 19, verse 4 and 5. Jesus said, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So Jesus reinforces the joyful, radical equality that we've talked about. There is male and female that was intended by the creator. And together they come together joining God's creative mission. But in verse 12 after he's kind of talked about the implications of that for divorce, we read these words. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word about divorce, but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who were born this way, and there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Now, of course, when he talks about eunuchs, he's talking about something very specific and very different from any issues around today. But it does seem that Jesus both affirms the creation, but also recognizes there are some for whom their experience in their body is, is not perhaps as it was intended to be. Which is why one author writes, and I've put the, the, the title of this book in the blog. It's called Embodied by Preston Sprinkle. Well worth getting hold of. He says this, I suggest that the Bible recognizes two sexes and yet provides a good deal of flexibility in what it means to experience and express your male or female identity. It seems what Jesus is doing is really important. That the description of maleness and femaleness in Genesis 2 has been radically interrupted by Genesis 3. And we'll explore what that looks like over the coming weeks. But at the very least, it does show that the world, we live in a world that despite all of our beauty and dignity is also broken and flawed. And so often we know the story of the transgression in the garden and the fruit and the serpent and think only in terms of personal transgression. But of course, forget the fracture in the whole of the planet. This world, our bodies, the very fabric of creation is groaning, according to Paul in the book of Romans. Our bodies don't work as they might. Our relationships don't work as they should. Our minds, our emotions, all aspects, beauty and broken, are groaning. As one author says beautifully, every one of us, is a member of the coalition of human beings who feel out of place in our bodies east of Eden. I love that. In truth, all of us were a bit like people floundering in an ocean, trying to swim across the sea. All of us don't need correct advice being thrown at us from the shore. We need someone to jump in and swim with us and carry us because they know the way to the shore. And that, friends, is exactly what Jesus has done. We have one who identifies with us in our brokenness, in our frailty. The God of the universe, God with us in our out-of-placeness, 
in our turmoil. If you like, he's God with us and he's chosen the pronoun human for all of us. And that gives us, I think, as a church, a radical opportunity. It's no surprise that immediately after this passage in Matthew 19, we have the moment where Jesus welcomes who? The little children, the ones who are seen as outcasts or irrelevant in the society of the day. There's a radical opportunity in a culture of outrage to show radical love. As Preston Sprinkle says beautifully, I think, our cultural moment is an outrageous one. What we need is a different way, a fresh posture, a radical biblical community, one that affirms bodies, rejects stereotypes, pursues truth with humility and lavishes grace on everyone who fails. People don't need more outrage. They need a fresh encounter with love. As the number of trans people in the world increases, our churches should have more trans people, not fewer. Not because our ethics weak or unclear, but because it's strong and holistic, true, courageous, compassionate and humble. If people, especially marginalised and broken people, come into our communities, they should never want to leave. Friends, that's the call for us as followers of Jesus. To be the kind of community that people never want to leave because of the outrageous love we experience because we've experienced from the God who stepped into our world, into our brokenness, and took our place. That's good news. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together. And it's such a right thing to do, because in amongst all discussions of how we see ourselves, we need to remember how God sees us. Loved. In the middle of our brokenness, in the middle of our frailty, the God of the universe steps into that, took our place, and therefore said, come home, come home. So we're going to worship together. I'm going to pray, and then Ben, we're going to sing this beautiful song that reminds us of this amazing saviour. So let's be still. You may find it helpful to close your eyes. And in the stillness where you are, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence. And I pray for every single person watching this right now. Lord, that they be aware of your outrageous love for them. However they see themselves, may they now see a glimpse of how you see them. Thank you, Lord. We bless you, Lord.